Good afternoon, everyone. It's Mobile Melter. That's Eminem right here, live at office hours with my two friends, Double B, Blaine Barlett, and Double J, John Jennings. Welcome, gentlemen, to office hours. Thanks for Absolutely. Well, Blaine, I'm going to start with you real quick. It's always a pleasure to see you, my friend. Uh, you welcome. as well. I think you might be in, you might be in Southern California, actually. I'm not too true? far from, uh, from, yeah, I'm down in Newport Beach right now. It looks like it. And uh, if anyone has not followed Blaine Bartlett, if they're not part of the mindset mastermind, not part of reading the books that this man you're making a big mistake because he's my best and favorite mentor in business uh, and mindset of business, which uh, has led me to create uh, from great failures. Anyway, John Jennings also has written a book. He's the president and chief strategist of St. Louis and Family Office. And he wrote a book uh, that's utilized every day, The Uncertainty Solution. And it's how to invest with confidence in the face of unknown. Well, the only thing that I know that's certain is the unknown. That's true. Yeah. I love during in COVID, you know, people like, oh, my God, you know, there's so much uncertainty. I was like, wow, you know, if you could tell me exactly what's going to happen tomorrow, I know how to make billions of dollars. So yeah. uh, I've been waiting for that person that's certain about what's happening tomorrow. But confidence in uncertainty is absolutely a value add. And I want to start, John, uh, with seems to be something that helps me is um, in the context of uncertainty, I found to look at what we have control of. And I was wondering how that applies uh, to a philosophy or strategy in your book. Is there some sort of internal work that needs to be done in order to have the certainty of the unknown in investment? Yeah, David, uh, you, you nailed it. So really what my book is about, uh, you know, starts with talking about uncertainty, how we, you know, why and how we've evolved to, to dislike it. But really the answer isn't to grasp and try to find certainty in that which is inherently uncertain. It's it's, it's really to find confidence by developing a lattice work of mental models. And this whole concept was championed, pioneered by Charlie Munger, who of course is Warren Buffett's yeah. business partner. And what I've done in my book is brought together 35 mental models that are applicable to investors, but many of them are also applicable just to making decisions in daily life. So I found what great investors do is when faced with uncertainty, they pull out those mental models that are applicable at the time period. And to your point, David, they're the things that we do know and what we have control over, right? So that's exactly the, the point of my, my book. Anybody that buys it thinking that, you know, this book is going to help me get rid of uncertainty, sorry, can't do that, you know, don't have that crystal ball available. But, you know, what can we do? What do we know? What do we have control over to make better decisions and have better behavior is, is exactly yeah. what the book is about. See, yeah, what, what I love about both the title, but also you know, your referencing of Charlie and, and whatnot is, you know, it's an admonition that I you know, work with my leaders you know, that I'm you know, consulting and coaching with is, how do you know what to do when you don't know what to do? Given that you probably don't know what to do most of the time if you're, act, if you're moving yourself forward. If you know what to do all of the time, you're basically treading water. Yeah. You know, you, yeah. So 
the concept of investing has to do with, you know, obviously some something coming back to me. Mm-hmm. In your work with family offices, as an example, mm-hmm. uh, the, the notion of using wealth for impact, yeah, that, that notion of what's the impact mm-hmm. is an unknown, particularly in some of the family businesses that I work, or set family offices that I work with. It's kind of like when we're talking about impact, our, we've got an abstraction, but what is it that we're actually doing? And that uncertainty can hold back a lot of activity that could otherwise be unleashed. Yes. How do you address that, John? So in impact, are you talking about uh, like values aligned investing, investing and using your capital to, you know, uh, affect the world in in a way? Yeah, so exactly. So, yeah, traditionally, you know, investors looked at, you know, they wanted to invest as much money as they could over here. And then, you know, if they're philanthropic or charitable, they'd give it away over here. But, but yeah, there's this, this concept now, and, and I know there's, you know, gotten some backlash, you know, it's so ESG and stuff is like a bad word. Now. I know that there's you know, legislation in Florida or something to, you know, uh, prohibit, uh, you know, investing as a ESG investor, but it's, it's a concept much broader than that. And it's yep. that, you know, if you have capital to invest, how, what you do with that money can actually affect what happens in the world, right? How, how you put it forth. And, um, you know, what's interesting is you can, and, and some people say, oh, well, you know, I, I, I don't want to give up returns. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of studies going back and forth on whether investing this way, you know, you, you sacrifice returns. But I'll, I'll tell you one effective way uh, that we've done with many of our clients that, that you know you're not going to give up returns is to say, okay, let's say I, you know, don't want to, you know, I don't like, or I, I don't necessarily want to invest in, you know, the, the oil company majors. I don't want to, you know, Exxon and Chevron and BP and all them. Um, you know, one way to invest is to say, well, I'm going to own shares in them, but I'm going to make sure and vote my proxies in accordance with my values. And if you think about it, you know, whether or not I buy shares of stock in Exxon or not, right, and then the fund is Exxon, isn't going to really affect Exxon's business whether they have another little shareholder or not. But, you know, if enough, um, you know, if enough proxy holders get together or, or vote their proxies in a way, they can actually have an effect on the company, which is exactly what happened with Exxon uh, a few years ago when yeah. um, one of the one of its um, shareholders, engine number one, put together a resolution and got some board members on the board that are actually changing, um, you know, Exxon's direction a bit which is a huge victory for people that value that sort of thing. And it was done not by excluding Exxon, but instead owning it and voting in a certain way. I think that can be a very powerful way for most investors to, 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 to invest in accordance with their values. Absolutely. Yeah. And John, how have you fit in under the context of being confident in the unknown uh, with our biggest fear, financial security? Yeah. Uh, timing and risk tolerance. You know, one of the biggest uh, advancements I've had in being confident in investment. And you're looking at someone that lost over a hundred million dollars, so it took a little while to have any confidence at all. Mm-hmm. And every time I did make money with an investment after my bankruptcy, uh, it was a big pill to swallow of insecurity and changing the meaning of my past, a variety mm-hmm. of things. But once I got comfortable with doing the work with the strategists like yourself and reading books like the one that you came out with that really showed me, hey, 
why don't you start by figuring out your own time and your risk tolerance, and then somebody can help you. Because as long as you align an investment with that, mm-hmm. how does timing and risk tolerance analysis uh, really affect our confidence? Yeah, so I, I think the, well, and first of all, let me say, you know, thank you for sharing your story. I read, um, you know, the, the, that forward that you wrote in, um, I forget the name of the book, but you laid out your story and your bankruptcy. And I think, you know, it's like to quote Brene Brown, vulnerability is strength. And that's a very strong thing. And I'm sure, you know, horrible at the time. But if you look back, probably it was a very meaningful thing that changed your life for, for the better. And I think that's true for so many people. Things that seem horrible at the time uh, end up, you know, really, you know, if they go about it the right way, can, can really vault them to these other levels of success, which it obviously has for you. So anyway, kudos, um, you know, for that. But, um, you know, I, I think a key thing to have confidence in the face of uncertainty is, is first of all, to recognize when you're feeling uncertainty and own it and say to yourself, you know, in my case, it'd be like, John, I'm, I'm feeling uncertain, you know, um, instead of doing a lot of the things that humans are primed to do in the face of uncertainty, which are not helpful or even counterproductive, you know, I'm going to step back, I'm going to own it. And then it, it is this concept of, of focusing on what you know and you can control. And I think the thing that is really freeing is to understand so many things that investors think they need to know or to hire somebody that they're going to know in order to invest well. Just you don't need to have them. Like there's this idea in investing that you have to be able to predict the future in order to invest well or have an advisor that can tell you what's going to happen in the future. Well, the problem is, is, is that's not really possible. You know, and in fact, most experts that are the ones that are going to give you an opinion about what's going to happen in the economy or the market are the ones that you least want to listen to because there's actually an inverse relationship between their confidence in predicting and their prediction ability, right? So investment experts, political experts, economic experts, atrocious at predicting. So it's better instead of, you know, if you're going to go out to sea in a boat, you know, instead of listening to somebody say, here's what, the weather's going to be like, there's going to be, you know, smooth sailing and there's not, or it's going to be a storm, you know, instead of being, you know, in the wrong type of boat, the better strategy is to say, I'm going to invest like I don't know the future because I don't and realize that there's not some mythical guru that can see around corners into the future. And I think that's like at first that, that, you know, my editor, when I was first going through, you know, outlining this book with her and everything, she goes, you know what, John, this book is a little bit like learning there's no Santa Claus. <laughs> and, and, and sorry to anybody that, you know, is, you know, that, that was news to them on the, the show that there's, there's no Santa Claus, right? But, um, but, I got you know, a whole crowd, you're saying. Yeah, good, right. Easter Bunny's alive and well, though, right? But, yeah, exactly. <laughs> still hopping around. But, but I, I think it's better to acknowledge the inherent unpredictability of the future in the markets because you can't than it is for us to kid ourselves and to be searching around for, you know, that expert that's going to be able to deftly weave us in and out. And, you know, I was just I was looking at um, an article in Bloomberg this morning that showed the different um, projections of what the Fed funds rate is going to be based on Fed futures. And it was showing, you know, an entirely different curve from just a month ago. Like it was yeah. like it was, you know, in six months it was showing a 
a percent higher. Now it's a, a percent lower. And even from this week to last week, it was totally different. And I mean, these aren't just people making predictions. These are people using their own money to chart the course of what they think the, you know, the Fed funds rates going to be. And I just think, and, and the Fed doesn't even know. Like if you look, you know, this time last year, what they thought interest rates were going to be and inflation compared to what it is, you know, it's, it's, it's night and day. So I think it's important and freeing to be able to say, I'm going to invest in a way where I don't have to predict the future. And that hopefully should give investors a lot of confidence that they don't need to wait to invest, um, that they don't need to find the exact right advisor to invest. They just they have to follow the, you know, the, the, the right process and have the right strategy to invest is, is, is really, I think, the, the key to investing with confidence in the face of the, the unknown. And that's why I have all these mental models. You know which one to pull out. So I have one called the stock market is not the economy. And it explains the fact that you can't look at what the news is about the economy and then use that to inform your investment decisions because they're uncorrelated currently. But it's really the stock market that predicts what the economy is going to do. Not perfectly, but ish. The economy doesn't predict what the stock market's going to do. So we use this with clients in March of 2020 when COVID was raging. But like at the market bottom on March 23rd, there was only a thousand COVID deaths. And if somebody had said, like, even if you could see the future and somebody said, okay, there's going to be, you know, millions of COVID deaths worldwide and international travel is going to be shut down and basketball and hockey and all these sports leagues are kaput and restaurants are going to go out of business and unemployment is going to spike by 15% and GDP, you know, uh, this quarter is going to be down. What was it? 14% or 14%. Yeah. Just crazy. And the initial unemployment claims 3 million, like the, the chart didn't even work that the, you know, Wall Street Journal printed. Like if you knew all that on that date, that that was still in the future, you probably would say, I'm not going to invest. I'm going to pull all my money out. But using the stock market is not the economy mental model, which is it's not going to help to know. And if even if we did, it wouldn't tell us. And what we think we know, you know, doesn't tell what the stock market's going to do is perfect. We actually rebalanced clients in the stocks. It, it went up 70 percent. And the point wasn't we didn't call the bottom. We knew that just because the news was bad and getting worse didn't mean the market was going to continue to get worse. Same thing happened in 0809. It, it happens over and over and over again. So that's an example of a mental model. It can give you confidence in the face of incredible uncertainty, for example, that we had it during COVID. Beautiful. Yeah, I think those same yeah. experts predicted a dry, a dry winter here in California. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Preparing, you preparing for a drought. Anyway, uh, John, everyone, what a great book for any time, any season. The Uncertainty Solution, I'm sure, is applicable as well to other things as well with philosophies and practices uh, and a guide to help us all understand not just financial news and data, but multiple ways of creating more wealth and more certainty and uncertainty. Thanks for joining us. Come back and visit us soon. Cool. Well, thank you. It's in, in fun to have mobile melted. Oh, oh, well, sure. I'm, I'm safe, though. I'm safe. Pass you are. Okay. All right. Thanks. All right. See you guys. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. What a great book. Uh, oh, that is. I love the title and I love the content. Uh, and today we got easy names. So as uh, I'm a passenger in Mobile Meltzer, you know, John Jennings is easy enough, but Todd Wilson is even easier. So uh, I'm happy <laughs> I don't have any of a name butchering going on. CEO of Crack My Credit. CrackMyCredit.com, uh, another area of uncertainty 
um, is uh, understanding credit as a credit expert. And we have one of the best here, Todd Wilson. Welcome to Office Hours. Thank you, David. I'm happy to be here. Good to see you, Todd. Good to see you too, Blaine. You know, as an entrepreneur, uh, and as someone you had mentioned, you know, that lost a lot of money, one of the ways that I lost my money was not understanding the credit I had um, and who held it and who could take it away, uh, even though it was perfect. Uh, it, it's an amazing, complex beast to understand uh, interest rates, penalties, fees, timing, approvals. Um, and so as a successful loan officer, a credit expert, uh, you are a necessity for every entrepreneur uh, to have as a mentor, a teacher, and a coach. What are some of the aspects about credit in the expertise side that are applicable to entrepreneurs today that we should be aware of? Well, I'd say the first thing is that as an entrepreneur, you absolutely positively have to have great credit. And the reason is because if you don't, you're going to miss out opportunities and possibly lose money because of that. And then you're going to lose money, as you mentioned, just because you could have higher interest rates, late fees, that kind of thing. And, you know, all those things combined, it can really not just lose you money, but slow down your progress. I mean, if you think as an entrepreneur, you know, you're starting out, most entrepreneurs start out with pretty much nothing in a very low budget. And they kind of work their way to the top and they go, okay, I'm going to work. I'm going to make this work. And, you know, they put in the, the long hours and they handle all the tough things and it just takes a long time. But if you can shorten that time frame by getting credit and put using that money, you know, put it to work correctly, then you can shorten your runway by so much. I mean, you know, I've seen entrepreneurs start and, you know, they've just got nothing. You know, they've got, they've got no assets, no credit, and it's a slow roll to get up. You know, you're, you start making first month, you make like four grand. You're like, woohoo, I made four grand. I've made it. You know, and I remember because I was there. You know, the tagline on your book, I think, is worth paying attention to. To play the, uh, first of all, crack the credit code. Yeah, but the tagline here, to play the game, you need to know the rules. And years ago, I literally stumbled, and I mean stumbled on the notion and the fact that the essence of every game is contained in the ground rules of the game. And if you really know the ground rules of the game, the rules of the game, there is an immense amount of things that you can do in the game that other players aren't doing because they don't know the rule set. Yeah. And, I, and, and the, 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 you know, if you, if you approach credit and the acquisition of credit and the utilization of credit from the perspective of there are rules that can inform what you can actually leverage and how you can actually leverage it other that others aren't doing. You're going to end up in a very interesting competitive position. What are some of those rules that most people that, you know, don't know about that could actually enable them to be more successful with this? Well, I would say that the biggest thing, particularly for entrepreneurs, is the planning ahead part. Because most people, if they need to borrow money, they need it fast, they go to one of their credit cards. And, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. And if you can pay it off quickly, you know, no harm, no foul. But let's say, for example, a guy's got $10,000 in available credit, he owes, or in credit cards, and he owes three grand. 
So he's doing fine in terms of the use, what have, the amount of credit he's using, but he needs to spend five grand on something right now. And if he doesn't plan ahead and he just goes, okay, I'm going to spend the five grand. Now, all of a sudden, he's instead of a 30% usage, he's at 80% usage. 80%. And not only is his credit score going to drop, but because he's at a high usage level, he can't get credit because creditors look at that. They go, oh, well, you're using all your credit. So you're obviously a big risk because that's what the credit bureaus tell me. And the fact is the guy may have like, you know, that money coming in regularly he has no problem paying it. But they look at that credit report and to them, it's like, you know, it's like the New Testament in terms of finance. It's not. But that's the way they look at it. And so as an entrepreneur, you look at that, you go, okay, I need to borrow five grand. I've got this 10,000 available credit. I'm using three of it. So what you want to do is go, okay, if I can't borrow it on some other way and I have to do it on a credit cards, get three times as much as you need on credit cards. If you need 8,000 on credit cards, get 25, get 30. And that way you're using it, but to the credit bureaus, it looks like you're using credit responsibly. Absolutely. You're already using responsibly. You know what you're doing. You know you can pay it off, but they have a different viewpoint of it. And so that's one of those rules of the game that it doesn't make sense to us when we first encounter it. I mean, most people learn this on the hard way. They go, what? You mean you gave me a $5,000 credit card and if I use 5000 on it, you're going to call me out and say, no, you're a bad risk? Mm-hmm. Even though I pay it off monthly. Yeah, exactly. What about getting credit? You know, I think a lot of great entrepreneurs uh, think that they don't have credit and get credit. What are some of the tips about starting credit when you're starting a business and may not have uh, what you think is credit worthy background to get an established credit? Well, there are two main things that I focus on getting people credit. Number one is if you're just trying to build credit, you don't necessarily need credit in order to access money, but you're trying to get established. Uh, That one, I would get a secured credit card. You know, you put $500 into a savings account and they give you a credit card with a $500 limit. And you just use that once a month for something you normally pay cash for, maybe a tank of gas or, you know, a trip to the grocery store or something. You get the bill. And then you pay it. That way you pay no interest and you're building up credit. And, you know, that can work really well when you're first starting out if you don't need credit. Uh, But a much faster way to do it is to get added to somebody else's credit card as an authorized user. Now, there are a couple different ways of doing this one. Now, the first one is you go to a family member or a close friend who A, has good credit and B, trust you and you trust them. That's really important because when you're getting a secured credit card, you've got to give them your social security number and your birthday. And that means that you have to trust them. And they're putting you on their credit card, so that means they have to trust you. You know, so it's kind of a two-way street there. The second way of doing that is one that is being done a lot, but I don't recommend it. And that is that there are companies out there that sell this as a service that have you added to somebody's account for like two or three months just to get you that account so you can raise your credit score sort of on a, um, I really want to say, like a temporary basis. 
you know, so they, they add you as a temporary account holder on that account. And so your credit score can go up quickly, but then at the end of that time, it goes away. But the, there are two other, well, three other potential pitfalls of doing this. Number one, it's not cheap. I had somebody mm -hmm. come to me for mortgage and they did this and they'd spent, I forget how much, it was like three or four grand to get added onto somebody's account. And I went, well, that's just stupid. You could get a secured credit card, put that same money in, and just put $100 a month on it. There, you've got your low usage just like that, and it stays there. It doesn't go away. Uh, yeah. That's number one thing. Number two is, obviously, you're giving your personal information to somebody you don't know, and you're trusting that it doesn't go anywhere. You don't want it to go. So yeah. that's kind of a big risk. Yeah. The third thing is actually more on the part of the person who adds you onto their account, because if they don't know you, they can have their account closed. Because creditors are getting wise to this. And they say, hey, if you, know, if you don't know this person and you can't explain your relationship to them, they will take both of you off of that account and that account is now closed. Yeah. And you're dead in the water. That's right. Well, and here's another interesting fact that I found out recently. If you get added onto somebody's card that's an Amex, you don't get the entire history of that card. You just get the history since you were added to it. Uh, I know. Whoops. Bait and switch. But if you do a secured card, you're much better putting $100 than nothing on it, right? You, you want to actually right. have credit, right? Use it. Exactly. You know, a few years ago, we were doing this what if scenario on a credit report for somebody who's going for a mortgage. And he was doing the, you know, charge up his card every month for work. And then at the end of the month, he pay it off. And so to get a score up, we did a what if and okay, what if he pays it off and then his credit score would go up to X score. And then just on a hunch, we said, okay, what if he pays it off except for $100? And his credit score actually was 20 points higher with a balance than with no balance. Right. Interesting. I know. It makes no sense, you know, but these are, we don't get to make up the rules. <laughs> we yeah, just need to know what they are so we can use right. them. Right. Exactly. Well, I, I, will, I will tell you from someone that understands much more about credit now, and uh, it is one of uh, the greatest capabilities that we have in the United States. And, if you're not an expert at it, it's great to find an expert. Uh, it can make all the difference as an entrepreneur or in your life, uh, especially in homeownership, because uh, obviously that's uh, one of the greatest assets that we're afforded as well with leveraging credit. Uh, buying a home has so many advantages uh, in our lives uh, as an asset, uh, as you know, in the lending side of things as well. So uh, Todd Wilson is our expert CEO of Crack My Credit, crackmycredit.com. Okay. That was a little garbled at the end there, David, but I think we got the message. We did. Well, and I have to say right now, my website's right, being worked you. on. So if you go to crackmycredit.com now, you should probably wait until mid next week and then it'll actually be. <gasps> Back up and running. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm, I'm well glad advised. your website's about as good as my about as good as my interview. So we're all breaking up here. So 
Thanks so much. <laughs> thank you, Don. All right. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Don. Great information. That's really good stuff. All right. Okay. And next I think up, I know where you are on the road when, when the signal starts to degrade like that. I got a hunch about where you're at. Yeah, man. You know where I'm at exactly. John Ricketts is in the house, I hope, as I'm on the road. Yeah, very good. There he is. Hey, John. Hey, John. Great to meet you. John is the CEO of Writerly. And uh, I, I'm. I'm just uh, every every day we're talking more and more about AI and uh, I always talk about technology web one web two web three as a servant not a master and I've been trying to help entrepreneurs not be afraid of now the greatest servant given to us someone I did a meetup today uh, before I went in to see Howie Mandel and the person said to me Mr. Meltzer I don't want to be rude but some of the stuff that you say goes over my head. And what, what can I do? I, I don't really understand. I want to understand what you're talking about. I, you know, I like what you talk about, but I don't understand it all. How, how can I, uh, you know, understand what you're talking about? I said, take what I'm saying, put it into chat GPT and say, explain this to me like I'm an eight year old and it'd be the best way yep. to do it. In it. And, uh, and he was surprised, you, you know, really that can, that can be done. Well, uh, you understand the power of this servant. So I, I want to talk about how you're utilizing AI as a servant and what pitfalls we can see if you don't use it as a servant, but use it as a master. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. I think that's what we're all really trying to solve right now is, is how do we, how do we leverage, how do we harness this uh, in its current state? And, you know, from Rider Lease perspective, you know, we're a no code SaaS platform that's allowing casual users and super users to be able to leverage AI in meaningful ways, particularly in the business sense. Um, historically, you've had prompt engineers and coders and those with technical expertise that were able to um, really generate uh, extremely meaningful outputs uh, for business use cases. And sure. on the release of GPT-3 last year, uh, actually about a year and a half ago, GPT-4, um, most recently, we now have the ability to create more, create faster, create better um, than we ever have before. And when I say create, it's it's anything from you know e-commerce product descriptions to marketing content, sales enablement. Um, you know, they really extend to each and every team inside of a business organization, be it HR, operations, finance, and the use cases. You know, just keep becoming more apparent each week. And, um, you know, it's really about, uh, it's working at, at a cadence and a speed that's never before seen. And a lot of people have difficulty understanding, you know, what that really means. And so we're anchored to ChatGPT. Um, and OpenAI has done a fantastic job um, in sort of, you know, educating and conditioning a market to sort of get a taste of what AI can do for them in a casual sense. And what we're trying to do and what we're trying to solve is how do you take that sort of cursory level um, excitement around AI and translate that into powerful use cases for business? And, and so far, I think we've done a pretty nice job, um, but it's a complicated subject uh, and it's an intimidating subject. AI is moving at a very rapid pace and, and we're trying to bring that down uh, to a digestible level in a no code format so, so that um, 
you know, really everyone, like I said, from a casual user to a super user, can really experience what it can do for, for them and for, for a business. You know, I, I've been playing around with this for some time since it actually appeared uh, on, on the landscape. And I was at a business lunch today talking with uh, a couple of folks. And one of them asked what I thought was one of the best questions I've heard in a long, long time. And part of the discussion was organized around, you know, the, uh, the future of AI chat GPT, specifically as we were talking. And it struck me, and this is something that I've done a lot with my coaching work, uh, with the executives I work with, is inviting them to take time, to really take time and craft high quality questions in order to cause the kind of movement that they need to get in order to get the results that they say they want. So backing that up, I was struck by the quality of the question that I was asked, and it translated into basically the, uh, the prompts that uh, we use to you know, get in information. And it's, a, it's probably the most visible way I've seen of illustrating the power of high quality questions because it's so immediate and it is so uh, actionable if you're doing it well. And this is what leaders do. In, you know, leaders are looking to cause movement. The kind of movement I get depends on the quality of the questions I ask. So how much of your work, particularly with use case scenarios, is organized around the structure of high quality prompts? Yeah, so I think to answer your question specifically is uh, all of our work is centered around <laughs> embedding high quality prompts because the quality of the prompt dictates the quality of the output. And so that's a relative scale, right? Uh, we can all acknowledge that. You know, as I mentioned earlier, I say historically, and I use that in a in sort of a satirical sense in that history within AI is very recent. Um, yeah. But your, your greatest output generators have come from prompt engineers and those with a, with a deep technical background that can really um, dig in and, and prompt the foundation model in such a way that it produces exactly what that person is seeking. So the problem that we set out to solve about a year ago was why is that ability or capability only centered with a select few? Right. Yeah. So how do we get the, the, the degree of, of fidelity of output that is controlled by the prompt engineer into the hands of everyone from a business you know, standpoint to create more economic value is really what we're trying to do is we're trying to give people the ability to drive more economic benefit on behalf of their companies. And in doing so, you sort of, um, we don't really like to, to use the word democratize, but in a sense it is, it's democratizing access to prompts. So all of our work is centered around how do we take the casual user who is not trained in prompt engineering and allow them to derive the same level of, of AI output that those who are. And, and that's where we're focused, and, uh, and that seems to be what what our businesses and our you know, our partners and our customers are really looking for at this moment. And how much of the AI is utilizing AI in order to make AI better? <laughs> yeah, so it's a fair question because you know, in a sense, AI is is made better by training. And, and a lot of the training data um, can be produced by AI. And so 
if you think about it, um, you want to train on the perspective of highest quality inputs and, and training data, whether that's from an existing uh, business case study or, or it's works from, from a human, from a writer, from a historian, you know, whatever the original source may be. You know, and it turns out that some sources that are produced by AI are, are, are very good at being used as training material uh, for future AI outputs. So um, in a sense, you want to avoid an echo chamber. You don't want your, your, mm -hmm. your models saying the same things over and over and over again. Um, but the, the way that these fine-tuned models are trained and, and the direction that the entire market is going, the more training data that is of high quality, irrespective of sort of the originating source, is, is better. Irrespective of the originating source, uh, that, that I think that's important uh, because that's just the seed. And out of that, there's all kinds of things that can be accessed. And if we're looking at natural language prompting, which is essentially what you're speaking about uh, here, is how, yeah, how do I, it's not so much a how do I, but what is the caution that I need to be aware of when I'm relying on the output, you know, particularly in validation of, you know, is this factual or not? Is this actually... <laughs> relevant to what I actually thought I was asking sort of a thing. How do, how do you sort for that? With your I mean, I think it's, it's, it's what we do in everyday life, right? We, we look for sources mm -hmm. of truth. Um, and whether it's a Google search, whether it's Wikipedia, I think there has to be a degree of questioning, the authenticity and the accuracy of what's being, what's being put out there. You know, obviously yeah. AI is tremendously powerful in terms of speed, in terms of, of recognition, in terms of creation, analyzing large sets of data, but it's incumbent upon the, the user to actually check the work, right? It's not something at this stage that we're ready to say, look, it's 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 production ready. Um, like anything, we, we encourage our users, um, we encourage users of, of any type of AI to just check, right? There has to be an editorial process to make sure that what's being produced um, is accurate. And yeah, there are inaccuracies with every new technology. Um, there are some gaps. Um, those gaps will get filled over time as the technology improves. But it's it's really it kind of mimics everyday life. We want to make sure that, that what we are producing is authentic. We check our sources, and um, we're safe from that standpoint. Yeah, it reminds me of yeah. I was uh, driving over to I was driving to Big Sur not you know years ago years ago and. Apple uh, Maps was up and running. Just one of the first iterative versions of Apple Maps. And as I was following the road, I realized that where I was going was going to actually put me in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And it was kind of like, well, I'm, I'm glad I fact-checked this data because that turn could have been catastrophe if I hadn't been paying some attention to it. So that's essentially what I'm hearing you say with this is, yeah, not only buyer beware, but you know, don't don't not consume you know, because of fear, but be be in a position to fact check uh, reliably if you're going to rely on this for an enterprise level decision. Exactly. Yeah, you're exactly yeah. right. Yeah, natural language is a very powerful tool. Uh, we're exploring a lot of different applications and, and new use cases almost on a weekly basis. Um, the 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 source of of the information uh, in the data set is, is very
very valuable in terms of producing uh, an authentic and, and sort of truthful output. Um, as you sort of expand that and you work with foundation models that are pulling from trillions of pieces of information across the internet, it becomes even more important. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's amazing. And just uh, have a few minutes before we bring uh, Michael in on um, the ease of the, the low learning curve um, it is a positive, but yet a negative. How do you explain to people who ask, you know, hey, how easy is it to use? Because I think therein lies a lot of the danger and fear that uh, it's easy to use, but we don't want it to be the end all, as you suggest. It's or else we'll end up in the middle of the ocean, no pun intended. Um, you know, how easy it to use, but yet for the, you know, new user, you know, what would you suggest to get started with in its use? You know, that's a great, that's a great question. And it's one that I think um, a lot of our peer companies have also been trying to solve because there is this AI hesitancy that's in the marketplace. Um, there's a curiosity, uh, but people are, you know, we're all naturally hesitant about new tools and, and specifically how, how trustworthy these new tools are. You know, I think we're at a point right now where um, things that are largely benign in the sense of an AI chatbot, um, an AI blog writer, um, an AI email assistant are really good first steps to sort of get a user acclimated to what they can expect from an output. And then obviously they can work their way up from there. I uh, would not recommend starting out with some of the, uh, the, the more complicated use cases um, where your organization is depending upon you, know, you to, to deliver something very important by a deadline. Um, this, like anything else, um, is going to be a very useful tool for enterprises uh, for a long time. AI is here to stay. Um, it's only going to become more prevalent. But think about when CRMs first came out, when Salesforce first came yeah. out. HubSpot, you know, it's a new tool that is aimed at productivity. Um, can you do it all day one? No, but there's an iterative process from the user standpoint uh, that they can they can become familiar with it and then sort of uh, sort of self teach. And there's some wonderful resources that that we've seen pop up over the last few months. These boot camps. Um, there's there's graduate school courses now on on AI prompting. It's uh, the resources that support the learning of the technology are almost growing as fast as the technology itself at this point, which is good to see because, mm -hmm. you know, we all have to learn. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. John Ricketts leading the way into the future. The greatest servant yet in technology is AI. Let's use it accordingly. And don't forget, there's always that simple solution of asking for help. CEO of Writerly. Check out writerly.ai. John Ricketts, please come back. Everyone found this extremely valuable. We have many more shows and would love to learn more uh, in the context of being more interested than interesting, which is what I use AI for. So thanks for joining us. We'll have you back soon. Hey, great. Thanks, guys. Look forward to coming thanks, back. Thanks, John. You bet. Thank you. All right. So uh, we were talking about uh, tools of productivity. Our next CEO uh, and CFO and co-founder of Pray.com, the number one praying app. Talk about productivity. There's nothing more productive than prayer. <laughs> and Pray.com, uh, they have the app that makes prayer easy uh, and gives us a whole bunch of assistance in having faith and asking for
for more from a universe of more than enough. I always enjoy one of the superstars of our TV shows and other places, the incredible Michael Lynn. Thanks for joining me here in Blaine on Office Hours. Oh, we're, I'm so happy to be here. This is exciting. And uh, any chance I can talk about prayer, um, it's a good day. Yeah, me too. On our mission, we're all aligned. But what I love about talking about prayer, getting more business awards. <laughs> it's so yeah. beautiful. Yeah, you get all the business awards and uh, we're changing the world for the better at the same time. Uh, so, you know, what is it about prayer.com as an app? Obviously, shoot, everybody, everybody prays. But what is it about your app that makes prayer so accessible and, and productive, so easy to use that you're winning all these great awards? Yeah, thank you for um, for having me on. Thank you for asking. Um, so pray.com is pretty unique. Um, if you if you actually surveyed the world first and you surveyed the world and asked them, what was the first thing that they did that morning? People would say they pray. In fact, billions of people would say they pray. And so how are they praying? What are, what are the actions they're taking to pray? And, you know, when we started this company almost seven years ago, we said there needs to be an easier way to pray. There needs to be a way that people currently um, are consuming content, which is through mobile apps. Let's build a platform that helps people play. And so that's really the genesis, pardon the pun, of Pray.com is we <laughs> wanted to make it an easy thing for people to do, which is what, what's unique about our platform is every single morning we have a daily prayer. Every single uh, afternoon we have an afternoon prayer. Every single evening, we have an evening prayer. And so throughout the day, you get to pray. And what happens when you pray is actually a, a change in your uh, the gray matter density in your brain. If you do it on a, a regular basis, maybe you, you might even say a religious basis, it will actually change the gray matter density in your brain. And once that happens, you will feel better. It changes the emotional regulation of your brain. Once you feel better, guess what you're going to do? One, you're going to be happier. I know that's important for you, David, right? You're going to be happier. <laughs> but second, you're going to make other people happy. Because happy people, people like, happy. like to be happy around other people, right? And those people get happy and all of a sudden everyone's happy and we're feeling good. So, you know, I think the, the fact that we've made such a incredible platform to make people happy and to feel better about themselves um, is what's our, really our key to our success. You know, I'm, I'm, and I'm asking this purely out of curiosity here because I'm not real familiar with the app and the idea of prayer I've been involved with for, you know, forever. I mean, for me, it's a form of meditation, gratitude. Uh, I mean, all of that stuff kind of gets bundled into this. And this is a, a, a just the curiosity question. My assumption, and and do push back on me if I'm wrong with this, but my assumption is is that, is that it's a geo or it's a, a Judeo Christian centric app. Would that be a fair assessment? Yep, we have Christian content. It's really okay. Bible Bible based content. Bible based. Okay, so if I was of a different you know, religious persuasion. How useful will I find this to be? Because yeah. there's billions of people on this planet that are mobile users, and this would be such a powerful tool for them. If they could get their head around, I, I can actually use this. Yes, and, and that's what makes us unique. 
wearepray.com, right? So yeah. inherent in the name, it's about prayer. Now, our content happens to be Bible-based content. By the way, Bible-based content is healing, helpful content. Yes, it and is. And so we've got, you know, what's interesting about pray.com is our user base, our members, are from people from all different backgrounds. And we've done the surveys. We've asked. We wanted to find out, hey, are Muslims using our platform? Are atheists using our platform? Who's using our platform? And we were finding that, yes, they actually do use it. Now at lower rates, but they were using it. And so um, I think that's an important component of what we're doing at Pray is we are an inclusive platform. We believe in the power of prayer. Anyone can use Pray.com. There is no restrictions. And we don't want to put those restrictions on it. We don't want to say this is a Christian-only platform. No, this is Bible-based content. And you know, if you think about it where we're at, we just got out of this horrible pandemic and what's going on is there's a hidden pandemic right now that's happening and it's raging and it's a mental health pandemic. Yep. And so Bible-based content and faith-based content is really the solve for this. It really is. And so we need to get this in the hands of more people because then anxiety, depression, those are the things that, that happen when you come out of something like this, where you're in the house all day long, you come out, and you lose some of those social skills you have. You lose some of the friends you've had. And, you know, where do you turn? And I think this is a great place to turn. And it's a great place to have that one-on-one -on -one relationship where you can get content and get that help. And it doesn't matter what your faith background is. It's, hey, do you believe in really helpful content that can get you through the day? Well, and I think it's more than that to me, Michael. And I send, as you know, we're on the same mission. Uh, to empower people to be happy that will change the world by utilizing a collective consciousness. And what I and why I send everyone of every denomination to pray.com is that I see uh, with the acceleration of the community that you're building, you know, one of the top lifestyle apps in the world of positivity uh, that, you know, for so many years, all of the thought leaders have said, you know, if, uh, you know, I remember Dr. Wayne Dyer telling me, you know, if I was going to ch uh, change the world with world peace, I would get everyone to pray at the same time for world peace. Um, and that is truly the long-term, for me, capability that Pray.com has, is that, you know, as we go from over 10 million people to 100 million people to a billion people, which is my mission, imagine, Blaine, because you know this stuff better than Michael and I, imagine to be able to, to create prayer that is for uh, uh, solving or healing dis-ease of some kind that was plaguing the world. And yet now you have a billion people on the platform and we all pray at the same time, the same prayer for ease. Um, I'm convinced in a quantum metaphysical, physical sense that scientifically that it would cure the disease. And that is the power we're seeing in a microcosm with prayer how much uh, on your roadmap do you see this idea of a collective consciousness of healing certain specific issues? And will we be able to use pray.com uh, to hopefully heal the world someday? I, I, I believe, I believe we will. I have faith that we will. And, and it really comes around the mission. The mission is to grow faith and cultivate community. And the cultivate community part is critical. 
you need to have a community of people working together, feeling like this is this is a collective group of people that believe in the same thing. And, you know, you can only do that having a community of focus, a community mindset. Um, something about, interesting about Pray.com is we have the largest service in the world every single day. So what does that mean? We have more people in our app collectively around faith-based content at the same time every single day than the biggest churches that have ever existed. And so if you think about it, we're running the largest ministry on the planet. And what are we actually telling people? We're saying, hey, there's really helpful content here to make you feel better. You know, loneliness is something that's really, you know, ravaging us right now. People are lonely. Suicide rates that are all-time highs. Now, if you have a collective group of people that are coming together and say, hey, you don't need to feel this way. We're actually here for you. I think that's where we need to go, David, in terms of like the roadmap. You want to experience where you're going to get, um, you know, have people you can connect to one-on-one. -on -one. You can have a community that you can speak to, you can speak with. And we have some of those prayer communities right now. I think there's more opportunity as we move forward and actually bring on more large ministries that have current followers and say, hey, bring your content to pray.com. Let's bring everybody together, which is why we're building a platform and why platforms are so powerful because the more people you can bring in, the network network effects get even better. Network, yeah, it's an exponential yeah. impact. Yes. Joel Osteen, let's bring him on. Uh, Michael Lynn, we have uh, we need more of you. We need more of the app. It's so easy. Use pray.com. Try it. I, I promise you it will bring joy and happiness. Make it your practice to pray. Pray and have assistance in praying, but pray with others. It has a, a historical, not determinative on your religion, philosophy, spirituality, and even theories. Uh, I promise you, we are only helping each other by praying together, regardless of uh, our dogmatic uh, beliefs. So please, everyone, Michael, you have a VIP pass to everything I do. The world needs more of you and pray.com. And uh, next time I get down to Joel, I, I'm the head of Jews for Joel, Joel Osteen. He has a big <laughs> audience. Let's bring, let's, let's bring all the TBN people over. Let's do uh, it. Prayer every day. <laughs> awesome. Sounds like so a please plan. Pro promise me. Promise me you'll come on more of our shows and we could talk more about the power of prayer. I'd love to. Thank you so much for having Thanks, me. Anytime, brother. You Thank you so much. God Thank bless you. you. Keep up the great work. All yeah, right. Awesome. We've had four extraordinary guests. So full Wayne, show today. Full show. Yes. Yes, sir. Oh. I think the biggest one has to do with just the nature of questions. Um, and, you know, we, we certainly had that illustrated, I think. You know, when we were talking uh, you know, to, to uh, John around, you know, prompts. But the idea of questions, you know, certainty, uh, how, to quest yeah, how, do I, how do I know what to do when I don't know what to do? The power of prayer. Um, because, yeah, I'm, I'm actually yeah, in conversation with the unknown yeah, in, in, in one sense. So this idea of being able to formulate high-quality questions to um, use the questions that are available to me that I oftentimes don't even explore. 
I think is something that most people don't have experience with creating or generating. And it's something that if they took the time to really experiment and play with, what kind of question would serve best in this situation to cause the kind of movement I need to get the results that I say I want? That's where I think all four of our guests in some way, shape or form touched on today. Yeah, mine is very similar as usual, but it's about faith um, and how faith is interrelated into uncertainty, whether it be in investing, um, even faith in, you know, crack my credit. If you think about it, um, (laughs) there's a certain amount of faith. uh, And he was talking about, do we put our names on other people's credit or do we have faith in the credit bureaus or we have faith in the, the, the economy or the stock market? Uh, obviously AI requires a lot of faith and I think it is causing a a lot of interference to that and, you know, how we utilize uh, future technologies for the better as a servant, not as our master and obviously nothing like faith and pray.com. So I have faith in you and I have faith in goodness and I look forward uh, to our next time together. Thank you so much. Send my love to Cynthia Blaine Bartlett dot com he is one of the world's greatest mentors need i say more thanks for joining me on office hours buddy i love you i love you too enjoy the weather all right everyone we're here every day office hours is uh i don't even know how many hundreds of episodes almost 500 episodes be happy everyone have faith pray ask for help ask the right questions utilize technology in the right manner Tomorrow's training is at uh, 6 a.m. Pacific time. It's free. Email me, david at dmelcher.com. Register over 80,000 people registered for training. I send my book out as well for free. I sign the book. I send it to you. I pay for shipping in the book, david at dmelcher.com. Please join me tomorrow morning, 6 a.m. Pacific time, every single platform on. But email me. We'll get you registered, david at dmelcher.com. Be more interested than interesting. Thank you, Gigi. And thank you, Raluca, for producing the show. I'll look for your recommendations of our four guests of how we can continue our conversations and help each other. David at dmelter.com. Be more interested than interesting. But most importantly, be kind to your future self and do good deeds. We'll see you tomorrow.